You're listening to Elk Point Baptist Church. Subscribe to our podcast to hear every sermon and like us on Facebook by searching Elk Point Baptist Church, located in Elk Point, South Dakota. All right, well, good evening. It's good to see you here. Good to see some uh, guests here with us tonight. Uh, we're going to get into the Bible, and we'll uh, really want to start probably in John 4, the Gospel of John 4. This is a message out of Colossians, a continuation in Colossians, but, well, you'll see where I'm going here in just a moment. Uh, if you would, I want to take a trip tonight, somewhere warmer. But, no, we're going to take a trip back to the first century A.D. Uh, in India, China, Rome, and Greece, people felt and declared that women were not able or competent to be independent. Aristotle, you ever heard of him? You know, supposed to be a real smart, wise guy. But he said that a woman was somewhere between a free man and a slave. Now, if you understood how valueless a slave in ancient times was, you'd understand that what he's saying between a woman being somewhere between a free man and a slave, uh, Plato taught that if a man lived a cowardly life, that he would be reincarnated as a woman if he lived a cowardly life. Um, how many, are, are there any of you girls that are the second born, any of you ladies that were the second born or, or beyond second, third, okay. Um, well, for those of you uh, that are here tonight, if we go back to the first century AD, and it's not just this century, but it's uh, going over a long period of time, there's a good chance that you may not be alive today. Because in ancient Rome, and as well as other cultures, as we may mention in a moment, uh, little girls were abandoned in far greater numbers than boys. Uh, the killing of infant girls was so widespread that it actually began to affect marriage customs. So it was a common thing. Uh, a family may have one girl and keep her, possibly two, but after that there's a good possibility that the little girl would just be uh, killed on the spot. Uh, or perhaps taken outside of the city and just left to die of exposure, or whatever uh, animals or something that may come get her that was a common practice. In ancient Greece, a respectable woman was not allowed to leave the house unless she was accompanied by a trustworthy male escort. A wife was not permitted to eat or interact with male guests in her husband's home. She had to retire to, to her woman's quarters. Uh, women had the social status of a slave in ancient Greece. Girls were not allowed to go to school. And when they grew up, they were not allowed to speak in public. The Greek poets equated women with evil. Uh, what do you know about Pandora's box? Pandora, the woman, had a box. You open up the box, and what did it do? It unleashed evil on the world. Um, and so, that's just a little bit of an idea. Uh, Roman law, uh, there's a Roman law in the Latin, it's uh, patria potestas, uh, placed a wife under absolute control of her husband. Her husband had ownership of her and all of her possessions. He could divorce her if she went out in public without a veil. As a matter of fact, under Patria, uh, Patria Potestas, under that law, a woman had, or a man, a husband, had the power of life and death over his wife 
just as he did his children. Uh, and so in this, under this Roman law, literally, uh, just like you could go out if you're a, a farmer or if you're a rancher, you could go out without worrying about anything and go slaughter some livestock. Under this Roman law, a man could do that to his wife at any time. Under this Roman law, a man could do that to his children at any time. He, uh, he, had, the, he had complete power of life and death over his uh, wife. Uh, and as with the Greeks, women were not allowed to speak in public. And isn't that interesting how much we, we, we laud and praise the, the Roman and especially the Greece culture, but we don't stop to think how it actually was for women in this culture. Uh, they were advanced, and we know, man, Greece, they were, you know, uh, they, they started democracy and all of these things. Um, but I tell you, women had no part in that. Now, if you fast forward... Uh, to just about 150 years ago, somewhere in that range, uh, the killing of baby girls because they were girls was not just a practice of the ancient world. When missionaries and European explorers came into contact with foreign lands that had not been affected by the gospel, they found similar appalling practices with baby girls, in particular being the targets. For example, um, in the 19th century, Two Norwegian women missionaries, uh, so they, were, they were missionaries into China, Sophie uh, Reuter and, Annie, and Anna Jacobson, found infanticide uh, of, of girls was a very common practice. Uh, and this is what they wrote about what they saw in China in the 19th century. It is an exception that a couple would have more than one or two girls. Any more would be disposed of immediately. It was done in different ways. She could simply be put out as food for wild dogs and wolves. The father would sometimes take her to a baby tower, and that's, uh, they called it a baby tower, where she would soon die of exposure and starvation uh, and then be discovered by birds of prey. Others, again, would bury the little ones under the dirt floor in the room where they were born. If there is a river flowing by, the children would be thrown into it. Uh, Reuter and Jacobson would daily and nightly comb the abandoned places to try to save Chinese girls from this death. They would uh, then rear these girls and disciple them into the Christian faith. Uh, and again, this is the 1900s. This was within uh, you know, modern times, you could say. Uh, India, within these same times, is another example. And what we're talking about is prior to Christian influence coming into these countries. Uh, prior to Kent, uh, Christian influence coming into these countries. India, before Christian influence, uh, many are familiar with this, but it's uh, a practice that was called uh, suti, S-U-T-T-E-E, -E, uh, where if a man died, uh, as is still common practice often in India, as far as the way they dispose of a man when they die, they would put him on a pyre, you know, and burn them. But it was a common practice not that many years ago that if his wife was still alive, she would either voluntarily and sometimes involuntarily uh, be placed on that pyre and burn alive uh, with him and be killed as well. Because really she had no other purpose uh, outside of being uh, basically this man's property. And by the way, the practice at Sati, that, 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 that practice, that translates into English as good woman. Good woman. Um, there was a report of a Hindu woman 
who said, she said this to a missionary. After the Christian influence began to infiltrate India and after it began to uh, end a lot of these practices, uh, she said, surely your Bible must have been written by a woman. And the missionary said, why would you say that? And she just said, because the Bible is so kind to women. Uh, some places in Africa as well, uh, the wives and concubines of, the, of a chieftain would be killed at his death and buried along with him. Now, I share all this with you today, uh, as I'll say in just a moment, but I'll just say, going back especially to the first century, studying ancient history, and, th- and there are some exceptions to, these, to, to what I'm telling you, but for the most part, in some of these more advanced societies, you can see where women were at. You can see how girls were treated. And by the way, we know today that there's still uh, countries, aren't there, uh, that if they find out that a wife is pregnant with a girl, uh, in some places they're more likely to have an abortion uh, in those situations because they want to have boys. And we know that's created uh, problems in uh, a few Asian countries. But here's what I thought about. The verse I thought about in regardless to where the ancient world was at at this point is Matthew 4.16 where the Bible says, "...the people which sat in darkness saw a great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up." Um, So Jesus came into a dark, dark world for all mankind. And I want to say, and hasten to say this, as, as you can tell, I'm preaching geared toward women tonight, but I want to say that the Bible teaches that we were all in the darkness of sin, and that's why Jesus came. And if you don't know Jesus Christ tonight, I'm telling you, there's a darkness uh, deep inside your life that Jesus wants to light up your life and your world. And He wants you to come to a saving knowledge of Him. But the world was a very, very dark place uh, for women in particular when Jesus was born into the world. The extremely low status that the Greek, Roman, and Jewish women had for centuries when Jesus was born was radically affected by the appearance of Jesus Christ. His actions and teachings raised the status of women to new heights, often to the consternation and dismay of His friends and enemies. By word and deed, Jesus Christ went against the ancient, taken-for-granted beliefs and practices that defined women as socially, intellectually, and spiritually inferior. So I want to go to the Gospel of John. Well, and before I get there, I want to tell you kind of the preface of why, why are you talking about this tonight? Because the message that I want to give to you is how Christianity changed the world for women. How Christianity changed the world for women. Um, we are actually still studying the book of Colossians. And I know it don't seem like it at the moment. But what we were about to start into and what we're going to start into next week is a discussion about the home in the book of Colossians. It's been very doctrinal, but now it's switching to something very practical. And in Colossians 3, verse number 18, the Bible says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Now, I just want to let that verse wash over you for a second. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Verse 19 says, Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Folks, 
the very first attack that ever took place, that Satan ever launched upon mankind, was specifically toward the home. This nuclear family that God had placed in the Garden of Eden was Satan's attack. The, 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 the marriage, the, that, that relationship that they had with God. Folks, the home is important to God. Now, you and I, as we mentioned a few weeks back, we have grown up in a time to where we have seen, uh, especially in our country, the, uh, the cultural Marxism that has been Satan's tool of attack in the American home. Homes in our society become less and less recognizable with each passing generation. And it's amazing to me that, that, that the, you know, those that uh, are the social Marxists of our day are actually open about the fact of being against the nuclear family being against a husband and a wife in a home raising their children together. Despite social science teaching us that that is the healthiest model because it is the, the God-given model, but they're against all that. Uh, and But we see the results of that, but it's, it, it matters not. But so, tonight as we continue our study in the book of Colossians, I feel strongly compelled to address head-on the grossly slanderous charge that Marxist feminism has leveled against the Bible in terms of women. Some feminists charge Christianity, the Bible, and the church are anti-female and horribly oppressive to women. And by the way, I could just say, aren't there some miserable women around this church? Uh, <laughs> Uh, but you know, I just say that because I think about some of the sweet and joyful ladies that we have in the church. But, uh, but, but, but that's what the charge is. There's some that would teach that God, the God of the Bible, hates women. And that the Apostle Paul disrespected women in his New Testament writings. Uh, and i got to say, there is a, there's an irony in this protest. Because remember what I was telling you about the world when Jesus came. And I'm telling you, when you begin to study history, when you begin to find out what began to change things for women, I'm telling you, it was Christianity. It started with Jesus Christ, and then the New Testament, and His followers, and I'm telling you, it began to change the world. It began to change the value of human life in general. Uh, it began to change the, the way people treated the elderly. There's a lot of other things that we could talk about, but specifically tonight, it greatly changed uh, life for women and greatly improved. Uh, I mean, there is not a, there's perhaps, there's, there can't be anything uh, greater that's ever happened in, in, the, in the lives of women than Jesus Christ coming to this earth and preaching and teaching. And I know ultimately, I understand, I don't want to just be trying to stay on the social side of this because I know as I was uh, sharing this with my wife, she said, well, the greatest thing, she said, of course the greatest thing that's ever happened to me is Jesus Christ and Him saving my soul. And that is the most important thing, to make sure that you know Christ as Savior. But I'm just trying to simply make a point that these uh, you know, Marxist feminists would try to charge God and charge the Bible with these things. But there's an irony to that. Uh, and the irony is this, it's, it's much like those who are marching and protesting uh, for communist ideals. What's the irony of people marching and protesting for communist ideals? If you, a communist country, 
You can't march and protest and voice your opinion. There's an irony there. There's an irony to a woman who is able to, number one, survive infancy. We, we take that for granted today. But before Jesus Christ, your, your chances as a female were very, very less likely that you would be staying, stayed alive or still be alive after birth, after you were discovered to be a female. But, 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 they're, but they're being able to survive infancy, at being able to be educated uh, from the time that they're, they're, they're young, be treated well, able to go get a college education, and now stand up and charge God and the Bible with some sort of uh, trumped-up charges of being anti-woman. To where I would say the irony is, Miss, if it weren't for the Bible, if it weren't for Jesus Christ, there's a very good chance you would not ever have had the opportunity to stand and say what you're saying right now. That's the irony to it. But I say that to say that the attack in our culture across the board, but we're honing in on this idea of women and feminism tonight, um, that the attack across the board, sadly, has been very effective in our society. I read that verse earlier. And anytime I go along those verses, you know, I'll, I'll make a short, brief statement about the Bible and the New Testament and what it has meant to women. Uh, but it's still something because when we read that verse in Colossians 3.18, generally the feelings we get are not benign. Um, in other words, a verse like Colossians 3.18 can evoke a defensive if not a hostile reaction from women in the church. And for men, men can get really uncomfortable, if not timid. Don't say that, preacher. Matter of fact, uh, a number of years ago, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, and I always like making this distinction, I'm Southern and I'm Baptist, but I'm not Southern Baptist, okay? Uh, and, and, and because we're, we're, we're not a part of some greater convention or organization. We're, we're, we're an a independent New Testament autonomous church. Uh, but but, but there, was, there was votes a number of years ago whether or not they were going to keep that. Are we going to agree with that verse anymore? After all, this is, you know, at that time it would have been probably, two, you know, this is the 2000s. Are we going to agree with that verse anymore? Let me, let me, just, let me just cut one thought off here real quick. The Bible's the Word of God. And don't ever buy into the lie. Don't ever try to justify something that's uncomfortable to you about the Bible by saying, well, they didn't have any idea what it would be like in 2022 when they wrote that. That's a common thing to be said. But I'm telling you, the Bible's the Word of God. And God knew exactly what we've been going on in 2022. And this Bible is very pertinent and relevant to today. But again, uh, why do we feel the way I was talking about there? Either defensive or angry, perhaps from a woman, maybe timid or uncomfortable as a man. I would say this, the problem is not God's Word. The problem is not the Word of God, but the problem is our perception of the Word of God. It's our understanding of the Word of God, of what the Bible's saying. So I believe that the best way to answer the context of why we're even uncomfortable with it is to 
give an admonition on how Christianity changed the world for women. And then we'll address verse 18 a little bit more, Lord willing, on next week. And then we're going to go on because, again, we just want to talk about the positive impact and how that if you're saved by the grace of God, your Christian life is not just to be about whenever it is you come to church. It's, 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 to, it's to be a part of your life every day. Because if you, if you don't know this, what it means to be a Christian is, you know Jesus Christ as Savior. The Spirit of God lives within you. He walks with you every day. Praise the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? It's a relationship. It's not a religion to where you're trying to please God. It's a relationship. And this relationship then goes right into the home. And God has words for husbands and wives and children right within the home. So that's what we'll look at next week. But I just felt it was important to look at kind of the background here a little bit. Okay. Now, if you're over in the book of John, chapter number four, I wished I could, almost wish I could have some volunteers to say, <gasps> to gasp as I read John four. Now, some of you, some of you, I think, may have just read John four today. Uh, if you're, uh, depending on which Bible plan you're on, you know, uh, I, I invited you to 200 of them. Um, but, but depending on which Bible program you're on, and I'm not trying to get you to do them all, I promise you. Uh, I went and saw Melanie. I think it was yesterday. I said, what are you doing? She said, I'm reading 20 chapters of the Bible. <laughs> and uh, listen, I was trying to give options in that Bible plan, okay? And if, you're, if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'd love to invite you to some. I'm not trying to get you to do all of these. I'm not doing them all, okay? I'm just trying to give options for people to do. But the point that I'm just simply trying to make is you may have just read John. And I doubt when you read John that you were shocked. But okay, let's look at John real quick. And let's read John 4. Let's just start with, we're just going to read verses 7 through 10. And here's what the Bible says. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, give me drink. Now if I had, thank you. Thank you. You're playing along. You've got to pause there and say, he did what? Yes. But you had a little bit too, too much pronunciation on didn't. It's going to be didn't. No, he didn't. Okay. Um, all right. So he came. Sorry, kids. Um, give me to drink. For his disciples were going away by meat. Then saith he to the woman of Samaria. Then saith the woman of Samaria to him. How is it that thou being a Jew askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. She talked to him. Verse 10, Jesus answered, oh my goodness. Oh yeah, I'm sorry, I, I, I interrupted. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Okay, yeah, y'all did good, y'all did great. All right, um, I, I didn't even expect y'all to do that. Now, here's the thing. Uh, the humane and respectful way that Jesus treated and responded to the Samaritan woman at the well, this woman we're reading about, may not appear unusual to readers in today's Western culture. Yet what he did was extremely unusual. In fact, just the few verses we just read, this dialogue goes on through verse 26. Folks, this is radical. Radical. Okay? Um, 
He ignored, the number one, he ignored the, the Jewish anti-Samaritan prejudices. He didn't get caught up in uh, quote-unquote racism. Uh, he didn't get caught up in partiality. But even more, he did not get caught up in the prevailing view that saw women as inferior beings. Now, uh, I'm picking up right here in John 4. When I'm talking about you know, what God's done for women... I'm not going to be able to cover all of it tonight. I mean, I couldn't if I tried. But I'm not even going to be able to mention them all. But I think it's worth mentioning, just coming out of Christmas, from the very beginning in Genesis 3, God promised that, you know what, Satan? I'm going to use a woman. I'm going to use a woman to bring about the seed, the Messiah that's going to bruise your head. So right away, He appears to a poor woman, really a girl, uh, to let her know she's going to be the one when it comes to Mary. Think about Elizabeth. Think about, in the very beginning, these awesome uh, things that we see. But now, but I'm just going to pick up right here. But I, don't want you to, I want you to know that there's a lot more that could be said. First of all, uh, he started a conversation with this Samaritan woman in public. The rabbinic oral law, you know, the, the law of the rabbis, was explicit. And here's what the oral rabbinic law... Now, this is not the Bible. This is... And let me know if this sounds familiar. This is the rules that people added to the Bible. They read the Bible, and then they had kind of their little... Uh, their interpretation, their, uh, their commentary on the Bible, and it became law. That's happened in a lot of churches today to where people's commentary on the Bible has become as if it were law. But I'll uh, leave that alone for now. But literally it says this, He who talks with a woman brings evil upon himself. Another rabbinic teaching prominent in Jesus' day taught that one is not so much as to greet a woman. So we can understand why His disciples even were amazed to find Him talking to a woman in public. Can we even imagine how it must have stunned this woman for the Messiah to reach out to her and offer her living water for her thirsty soul? Among Jesus' closest friends were Mary and Martha and Lazarus, who entertained Him at their home. In Luke chapter 10, you can read about these friends of His. Martha assumed the traditional female role of preparing the meal for Jesus as her guest. But what her sister Mary did was something that only men would do. And that is, while Jesus was teaching people, she said, Martha, do you got this? I want to go listen to Jesus teach. I want to go learn. And Jesus was okay with her. This is crazy stuff, y'all. He was okay with this woman sitting in the midst with them and learning and teaching her. We look at that today, we're like, okay. But remember what I read to you earlier? Women, women weren't much, women were somewhere between a slave, depending on the culture, somewhere between a slave and a free man. Again, under that one particular Roman law I mentioned to you, women weren't much, elevated much greater than livestock. Just keep that in mind, in the culture. But Jesus changed all that. He taught. Mary, because of this, you could say, was a cultural deviant. But I'll say this, so was Jesus. Jesus was breaking the cultural norms. Um, 
By teaching Mary spiritual truths, he violated another rabbinic law. So by teaching her, here's here's what the rabbinic law taught. Let the words of the law be burned rather than taught to a woman. Pretty extreme, isn't it? That's what the rabbinic law taught. If a man teaches his daughter the law, it is as though he taught her lechery, which is sensuality. It's dangerous to teach a woman. When Lazarus died, Jesus comforted Martha with his promise containing the heart, uh, something great at the heart of the Christian gospel. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said unto her, again, we just read it fine, but just those three words, Jesus said unto her, that's four, just those four words are profound. Jesus said unto her, then listen what he said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. That's profound. These remarkable words were spoken to a woman. To teach a woman was bad enough, but Jesus did more than that. He called for a verbal response from Martha. Because after that he said, Believest thou this? Again, to us it's totally normal. But I'm telling you, the Bible, Jesus Christ, Christianity, changed the world for women. This This was radical. He said, do you believe this? He responded, and she, he asked for, for a response from her. Uh, all three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, note that women followed Jesus, which again, that in and of itself was a highly unusual ph- a phenomenon in the first century, especially first century Palestine. This behavior, again, may not seem like much, but in Jesus' day it was highly unusual. Scholars note that in the prevailing culture, only prostitutes and women of very low repute would follow a man without a male escort. But Jesus had women, and He validated these women that were following Him. And the cool thing is that there were some of these women that were women of means. The Bible says uh, in Luke 8.3 that they actually provided financial support for Him. The first people Jesus chose to appear to after His resurrection were women. Again, we know, if, if you know the resurrection story, you know that Jesus appeared to the women. And we're just like, yeah, great. And then he, he appears to the women, and then He tells the women, go tell my disciples. Again, all of this is wrong. All of this is wrong in the culture. You don't want to know one of the amazing things about the resurrection? It's awesome that Jesus would choose to tell the women, and that the women would be the witnesses. Because you know what the witness of a woman was in court, or any other thing for that matter? Garbage. A woman's testimony, since a woman in this culture meant nothing, a woman's testimony meant nothing. It means nothing that these women... So, so oh, you, you're, you're probably crazy. You're making it up. Whatever the case may be. But Jesus knew all that. But He said, you know what? I'm going to tell the women. And then I'm going to go tell the women to be the one to go tell the apostles. 
It's just pretty awesome. Uh, I mean, it's, it's absolutely revolutionary. It literally changed the world. I mean, I understand, and, and I don't want to get so caught up on this, I know that the main point of Jesus changing the world was through His death, burial, and resurrection and, and meeting the needs of salvation uh, for all mankind. But just for a, a social point, for a cultural point, for a domestic point, I just want you to understand that the charges that are laid against the Bible are false. Uh, when it comes to the Bible being somehow, uh, or, or Christianity being repressive toward women, or the Bible being uh, oppressive toward women, um, Jesus elevated the value of women beyond anything that the world had ever seen. Quickly, I'll just give a few more examples here out of the Bible. Uh, when it comes to Peter and Paul, we know that Jesus gave women status and respect equal to men. Uh, not only did He break the anti-female culture of His era, but He set a standard for Christ followers. Peter and Paul both rose to the challenge in what they wrote in the New Testament. I'd like to go through these fairly quick, so please listen quick, and I can give you more of the details later. But uh, in a culture that feared the woman of a power's external beauty, and feminine, remember, in the Greece culture, a husband could divorce his wife if she went out without a veil. And by the way, I didn't even get into this, but it's, it's kind of mind-blowing to me. One of the cultures that the left loves to herald is that of the is Islamic world. Now, I, I, when, when I say that, I'm talking about, you, you go to places like Saudi Arabia. How do they treat women there? The left is supposed to be all for women's rights, but then they're in favor of, of, uh, of uh, you know, what's the, the way women are treated over there. And by the way, the way homosexuals are treated over there. Uh, but they're so strongly in support of all that. It's just, it's just hypocritical, which is often the case. But the point I'm just simply trying to make is this. This culture feared a woman's external beauty and feminine, feminine influence. But Peter encouraged women to see themselves as valuable as God saw them valuable. His call, again, doesn't sound like anything to us. His call to aspire the inner beauty of a trusting and tranquil spirit is staggering and countercultural. It doesn't sound like much to us when Peter says, who's adorning, let it not be that adorning of the plaiting of the hair, the wearing of gold, the putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a, of a quiet spirit, which is in sight of God, great price. Basically, he was telling women, glow. Glow. You can glow with the, the, with, with the good spirit. You can glow with your love for Christ, with your love for your husband, with your love for your family. You can, you can glow. Um, it's equally staggering when Peter says in 1 Peter 3, verse 7, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, of course, but he says this, Likewise, ye husbands. Now, at first reading, you may be taken aback, but, but just take a moment to listen to the verse. Ye husbands, dwell with your wives according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife, and here's the part that may get you, as unto the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. What he's saying right there is treat your woman as a treasure. Love your wife. Comfort your wife. I mean, care for your wife. Esteem your wife. Um, and again... 
Here's the thing that Peter said to, to, to try to summarize what Peter had to say about women and husbands' relationship to their wives. Consideration, respect, fellow heirs. These are concepts that sound good to us, but I'm telling you they were unheard of in the first century. Paul says, husbands, love your wives. Love your wives. As Christ loved the church. See, to some of these men, it would almost be like saying, love your ox. And I'm not trying to just be derogatory here, but I'm just telling you, women weren't much. They were, for, they, they were your property for your pleasure, for your disposing of when you wanted to. That's what women were. Uh, but, uh, but, but, but the Bible st- uh, changed that narrative. The Apostle Paul, uh, he taught, you know, I just shared that, that passage. What he shares in Ephesians 5, which we're going to talk more about next week, provides a completely new way to look at marriage. Um, the principles that, that Paul taught concerning marriage as well as Peter, these principles were in direct conflict with the Roman institution that I mentioned earlier, uh, Patria Potestas, which gave absolute power of life and death over a man's family, including his wife. Patria Potestas, that Roman law, was finally repealed by an emperor who was influenced by biblical standards. Matter of fact, if you want to know what changed the ancient world, remember, Rome was affecting the, the, the world as we know it, right? I mean, they, they moved all the way up into, uh, all the way up through Europe. What began to happen over time is Rome persecuted Christians, put them to death, but the more they Christians grew. It got to the point to where even senators and soldiers, there were so many Christians within the Roman uh, culture that it began to change. And it was startling. I have quotes. I, I have quotes in, in a book at home of some of the senators that just could not believe. Like, these Christians, they love their kids. They love their wives. They, 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 they esteem them. They care about them. And it's just, it, and again, that sounds like uh, that's what people are supposed to do, right? Yes, it's what people are supposed to do. But it was not what people were doing until, until Jesus Christ until the New Testament, until the influence of Christianity. Um, Because of the influence of Christianity, it began to erode the ancient practice of men marrying child brides against their will. I mean, you know, I was even thinking about this as I read this and studied this. Uh, I I love the fiddler on the roof. Anybody? Uh, I love the fiddler on the roof. But even then, remember folks, that's taking place in the 20th century, if I remember correctly, in the 20th century actually. And, um, and the whole thing is, there's this old dude, Laser Wolf, right? And this guy's going to marry one of his teen daughters off to this old guy. She has no say in it whatsoever. That hadn't been that long ago. But folks, that is not what the Bible uh, condones. The Bible goes against that. But, but, but it began to erode the ancient practices of child brides having to marry against their will, uh, often as young as 11 or 12-year-olds. Can you imagine an 11 or 12-year-old girl had to, had to marry some, you know, man? Some old dude that's already, uh, that is white, that's 50, 60, what, it's just sick. But, but that's the way women were treated. But, again, Christianity began to change this. Christianity began to change the practice of polygamy. Uh, Paul also provided high countercultural direction in the New Testament church. The Jewish, in the Jewish synagogue, women had no place 
uh, no voice in worship. In the pagan temples, women's primary role in the temples of the pagans was that of prostitution. Um, but not so, obviously, in Christianity. It said, the Bible began to teach, Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians, and when he's talking about all of us being members of the body, again, to us it's, it's simple. We get it. We can look around and understand the vital role and how that every, every Christian, if you're saved by the grace of God, you've been given a spiritual gift to serve within the church. And he, he compares the church to a body. How a human body, all the members work together to accomplish things. But Paul, God, includes women in that. And again, we're not like, oh, you know, but it is. It's, it's, this is craziness. In the ancient world. But I'm telling you, God brought His light into this. Uh, and again, um, you know, there, there are several more things I could say, but I think I'll uh, close the outline portion and we'll stand, we'll stand after I read this, alright? Uh, this is Dorothy Sayer. She was a friend of C.S. Lewis's. She wrote, Perhaps it is no wonder that the women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this. There had never been such another, a prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, who never flattered or coaxed or patronized them, who never made arch jokes about them, never treated them as the women, God help us, I'm just reading her quotes, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked uh, without, without uh, quarrelness and praised without condescension who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for men, never urged them to, uh, or, or jeered at them for being female, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dig dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. And it goes on, but, but just the point is, no wonder, she says, they were the first at the cradle and the last at the cross. And uh, so, I put all that in the context of, wow, how Christianity changed the world for women. How Jesus Christ changed the world for women. And I said we're going to all stand after that, and Danny's going to come and play. And we're going to be dismissed in just a moment. But right before we do, I've got to ask you this question. I've alluded to this several times throughout the course of the message. But when we talk about the Lord's tender love and care and consideration toward women, where does that come from? It's part of love that is much deeper than just male and female. It comes to Jesus being able to look deep into the hearts of an individual, every and each individual, and see their needs. I'm so glad Jesus saw every woman and still does as a person. Not profound to us, but it was profound in that day. And I want to tell you tonight that Jesus sees you right where you are tonight. Male, female, doesn't matter. He loves you. The Bible teaches that we were all born into this world as sinners. We were all born into this world as sinners. Every last one of us. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. That sin separates from us, us from a holy God. But Jesus Christ in love came to the cross to die for your sins because the wages of sin is death.
And if you've not yet received Him as your Savior, I encourage you to receive Him and accept Him as your Savior. See, the Bible says that the cross, He purchased, with His blood, He purchased a gift. And that gift is salvation. That gift is forgiveness. That gift is Jesus Christ. And in eternity with Him, man, a restored relationship with your Creator. But you must receive that gift. So my question to you tonight, right before, and we're going to leave, but my question to you tonight is, have you received that gift? I didn't say, have you acknowledged that gift? Have you said, oh yeah, I'm sure that's wonderful. No, have you said, Lord, I need you to forgive me of my sins. I need you to come into my heart and be my life, be my Lord and my Savior. If you haven't, I want to invite you to do that right now. Would you, with every head bowed, every eye closed, maybe from your heart tonight, you would say, dear Lord Jesus, I thank you for loving me. And I thank you for loving me enough to go to the cross to pay for my sins. Lord, I admit to you right now that I am a sinner and I need forgiveness. I want to turn from this.